Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Yotam Shemtov. Yotam is an assistant professor of economics at UCLA. Yotam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to talk about your research on restorative justice diversion programs. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? So I'm an applied labor economist, so I mainly do quantitative empirical work. The focus of my research uh, is in marginalized populations, so trying to look at society to its margins rather than to its main. And I find, um, so that, that led me to, to look a lot at individuals who are involved with the criminal justice system, to arrest, convictions, and, and so on. And I find the sort of justice fascinating for me for, for two reasons. One, I think it is a very interesting alternative to the regular criminal justice proceedings. And given the, our current state of affairs, getting and having more alternatives and understanding which alternatives works better or worse is an important topic. And the second thing, I think restorative justice is interesting because it reminds us how we deal with conflict in school. So in school, when something bad happens, the teacher will take two kids and tell them, talk to each other. How do you feel? How does the other kid feel? Like, apologize. Like, there will be some way of resolving conflict, which still doesn't stigmatize people. And so to me, sort of justice reminds me a lot of that. So I find it very interesting to study. That is such an interesting point. Great. Well, your paper is titled, Can Restorative Justice Conferencing Reduce Recidivism? Evidence from the Make It Right program. It's co-authored with Steve Raphael and Alyssa Skog. So tell us more. What is restorative justice? So restorative justice is implemented in many different ways throughout the world. I will focus in terms of what is restorative justice in the, in the context of the criminal justice system. And in this context, the emphasis is about holding people accountable by repairing harm rather than by imposing sanctions on them. So the view in restorative justice is that something bad happened, there was a harm. And the question now is how can we gather together all of the involved parties and restore the, the situation, restore welfare. And the individual that is responsible for them is known as the responsible party. Uh, I'm just giving you a bit of lingo from the restorative justice world to, I think it helps to, to set the stage. And the victim is known as the hound party. And then there's individuals who are representative of the community or supportive family members. And what usually happens is that the main focus is a conference. So it's a meeting where the responsible party, the youth, and the hound party, the victim, come together with supporters. And there's someone who coordinates the meeting and facilitates the occasion. And then there's a discussion. There's a discussion about what happened how the repercussions of the actions and the aim of that meeting is to is to both try to make the, the youth who is the responsible party understand what happened and the implication of their actions and also empower the victim. But the main thing is trying to afterwards have a plan of how to restore the harm. So what needs to happen now to make some kind of amends to, so we can move on. So I think you should imagine some kind of a, like a, a round circle discussion. Okay, so that's restorative justice broadly. And then you're going to be studying the Make It Right program specifically. So how does the Make It Right program work? The Make It Right program is a very interesting effort. It's a program that uh, originates from a collaboration between the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, an organization which is called Community Works West, 
It's a non-governmental organization. It specializes in restorative justice. And the program was piloted in 2013. And the aim there was to have 25 youth each year and then uh, expand from there. And the idea about the program, sorry, I diverted it for a second, but let me tell you a bit more just what happens in the program rather than the history of the program. So the program is, a, is it, it's like you were saying in the title, it's a diversion program and it works as a pre-charging diversion. So the, the pool of youth that are eligible for it is individuals who did certain types of felony offenses, who, who are charged for certain types of felony offenses. And the diversion takes place before charges are formally filed. So there's an arrest takes place, the charges goes to the handling prosecutor, they look at the evidence and decide where to file charges or not. If they decide they're going to file charges, then for those pool of, of youth, there's going to be a randomization and some will be uh, randomly draw to the make it to be eligible for make it right and others will not and go to the control regime. And for those who, who will be eligible for make it right, they will be assigned to the Community Works West before charges are actually filed. So they will not have any involvement with the criminal justice system since that they are assigned to the Make It Right program. So they will not be under supervision of neither the juvenile probation department, nor the prosecutor or anything else. And then we start the process of meetings with a person who's called a conference coordinator who will do preparation meetings. They will meet with the same coordinator, will meet with the victim. And then they will be trying to build a basis to conduct a restorative justice conference. The conference will take place. I'm happy to talk a bit more on the conference. And then uh, there will be a plan um, for what needs to happen next. And after that, the youth will basically move to the hands of someone who's called the agreement monitor. And that's a person that will help the youth accomplish the agreement to actually fulfill the things that the youth committed of doing in the conference. And then the youth has this process of making sure they pass all the milestones. And if they complete the program, then all the charges are permanently eliminated. And although charges were never filed, they will never be filed in the future. So there's only a record of the arrest, but nothing else. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about, I guess, two pieces here that I think people might be wondering about. So both the conference, kind of what's the tone of the conference, what's typical for those conversations to include, and then also for that post-agreement counselor, is that what it was called? Um, The person who like meets with the perpetrator, the defendant to kind of make sure that they fall through in the agreement. I think what's the tone of those meetings? So in the conference, the tone should be very supportive. Idea is holding someone responsible. So like the conference coordinator told me, that it's a very hard process for the youth. It's not something, in many ways, they think of it as, as a harder process than what happens to, to a person to the regular criminal justice proceedings. They need to face the victim. They need to take responsibility for their actions in their own words and then be held accountable. They need to see a representative of the community. So they have a lot of people basically reflecting to them how their actions harmed other people. So it's a hard process, but at the same time, it's a process that the aim there is to reintegrate the youth into the community. So the idea there is not to just say shame. The idea is to, to show them, to reflect to them the implications of their actions, but then also say, okay, so what caused you to do this? What were the things that led you to do this? And how can we help you to prevent it from happening again? So those questions raised, so if someone would say, I had problems in school, or I had problems with my relationship with my mother, they would say, okay, let's bring your mother, or let's understand what were those issues, and how can we can give you support to address them. 
So the conference also brings a variety of things that could be the causes of the incidents and trying to deal with them. That's one aspect. The other aspect, especially in incidents in which there's a property offense, for example, someone who gets stolen their laptop, then it's the, the idea of, of restitution. And a lot of times there will be some kind of restitution. So for, these are youth from very low income backgrounds. So they can't, for example, buy a new laptop. And that's one of the important things in the conference. Also for the conference to meet with the victim before the conference to make sure the expectations are set in a realistic way. So nobody's going to get a new laptop, but maybe they will get some kind of compensation. And the youth will not pay their own amount, but they will, will be held accountable to some degree. So that's a bit of a flavor of the conference. Great. Yeah, let's talk about the monitoring afterwards. So the monitoring is done by um, Hackleberry Youth, which is another nonprofit organization. And the idea there is a lot of support to the youth. So there will be someone who is going to meet with the youth once a week. And if they don't meet, they will call them. And the way they describe it to me is basically they're going to be like a nag. They're going to call, they're going to text, they're going to make sure that if someone is not following the plan, they will say, hey, what's going on? So it's a very different approach than like a probation officer, which comes with a stick and says like, do this or we revoke your probation. Here the idea is much more of someone who's like pestering you and reminding you and saying like, hey, you committed to these things, now it's time to deliver. And the idea is both supportive, but also reminding responsibilities. Great. So there's no stick in sort of the usual way we might think of with a probation officer, but at the same time, if they don't complete the agreement, then everything's off, right? And they go back to the criminal justice system. Exactly. So if they don't complete the agreement, then they automatically go back to the handling prosecutor and the, and the handling prosecutor set up the system that if they go back, charges are automatically filed. There's no decision. There's no like thinking over the fact they automatically face the felony charges that were prepared against them. Okay. That said, one interesting thing is that among youth who actually reach a stage of participating in a restorative justice conference, 95% continue to complete the program. So all of this support system seems to be working quite well. Okay. And so why might we expect this program to affect criminal behavior going forward? You're going to be looking at recidivism, so the likelihood that someone reoffends after all this is over. So what potential mechanisms should we have in mind for how that behavior might be affected? So a lot of things happen. But let me try to divide it into two broad categories of mechanisms. So one is, I think, whatever happens in the restorative justice conference. So the meeting with the victim, the understanding of the, the implications of your actions, and also all the things that happens in terms of people when people ask you what caused you to, to be involved in this incident. So what were the causes? So I would call that like, was the restorative justice conferencing and everything that happens in conferencing like a transformative event? So I think that that's one uh, potential mechanism. Another one is the fact that we are diverting someone from the regular criminal justice proceedings. And what I want to think about, so of course, the conference is, is a diversion. So it's, it's like, it's instead of the regular proceedings, but the regular proceedings a lot of times have tagging mechanisms. They tag you as, as someone who got arrested. They tag you as someone who's going to get a criminal conviction. They tag you as an offender. So trying to understand, Think at least whether how much being involved in those proceedings and the tagging that's involved with them is also a potential mechanism of this, of what we see. Before this paper, what had we known about the effects of restorative justice and similar diversion programs? So that's a great question. So there's 
Restorative justice is something that's been there for a long time. Before I talk about restorative justice, I want to just say a few words on, on diversion points. Diversion points is something that's expanding. I think there's a growing literature and that accumulates more and more evidence on it. And it seems to be quite, there's a lot of encouraging evidence. So for example, Michael Muir-Smith and Kevin Schneppel have a great paper about deferred adjudication in Texas. And Augustine and Coates have a great paper in San Francisco. And I think you interviewed Kay Raisin about their study on domestic violence. In, um, so I think there's a lot of growing evidence that these things are important and can be a good alternatives to, to the regular proceedings. However, restorative justice is a bit different because it's not only diverting you, but it also, you're exposed, the meeting with the victim, it, it basically tries to present a completely different way of resolving harms, not only presenting to you with a different system of carrots and sticks. So I think that's important. In terms of what do we know about restorative justice? So a lot of the, in New Zealand, where a lot of this started, it, restorative justice is a standard part of criminal justice proceedings. And it's been there for a long time. So I don't think there was ever like a real evaluation in New Zealand. But one of the reasons is that they, it's been incorporated there from the early 1990s. In Australia, there was a variety of different RCTs. In the UK, there was also some experimentation with it a lot of times, mostly though after people already were convicted, then they gave restorative justice as like as a way of reducing sentencing. In the US, there's a lot, a lot of restorative justice programs in a variety of different places, but having RCTs in terms of overcoming different challenges of selection in terms of who participate. There's almost nothing. There's two RCTs uh, from the early 1990s, which I will tell you a bit more about them in a second. But one thing to emphasize is that something that was raised in the literature is when do you do randomization in a restorative justice setting? And in the RCTs in New Zealand, the emphasis was that you only randomize after individuals agree to participate in the program. So if the defendant says, like, no, I don't really want to do this, then they're completely out of the pool. So any effects will be conditioned on of this selected sample of youth. In the US, the two RCTs that happened in the early 90s, were, which I think are the most comparable to what we're studying, were not like that. They were more like the Make It Right program. They did a, a randomization for everyone who was eligible for the program. And then we, they measured take-up rates, which is actually very important because in one of them, the take-up rates was, they, they didn't find effect. But one of the potential reasons was the, the take-up rate was extremely low. It was less than 40%. In the other one, it talked a lot of, it dealt more with very young individuals in the average age was 13. And they found quite meaningful effect in the short run, but then those effects faded away when you look at much at like longer run effects. So my summary of it is that this is something that's happening in a wide variety of settings in the U.S. and in other countries, but there's a lot of challenges in terms of doing an evaluation, and there's a lot of challenge in terms of trying to see, is this something that really can be scaled up? Got it. And just to clarify why you're highlighting the, the time of randomization, so part of the question here is like, could it be scaled? And if only 10% of defendants are willing to engage in this, and you look within that 10% and it really works, then you don't know how that effect would apply to the other 90%. That's the basic challenge you have in mind? I think that's exactly the basic challenge. Another thing, just I just want to highlight, there's a lot of challenges in implementation of these programs because they basically divert youth from a more punitive system. 
And then uh, therefore, a lot of law enforcement agencies have a lot of concerns about, about this program. So a lot of the times they're implemented at the beginning in a very small scale and only uh, over time starts getting increased slowly, slowly. And there's a lot of concern, for example, from doing an RCT because if you have an RCT, then you will have a control group. So those are, and there's ethical concerns about not giving people who have, that can benefit from the program, the program, if you can do that. And there's, of course, ways around it, like building capacity constraints by making the eligibility criteria more broad. However, that requires a lot of coordination with the law enforcement agencies to build the eligibility criteria in that way. So I think one of the reasons we, we have very few RCTs in the U.S. is that it's very challenging in terms of the implementation. So we'll get to the implementation in a moment in the San Francisco context. Yeah, I definitely want to dig in there a little bit more. But tell us, just briefly before we get there, what do you see as the main hurdles that researchers have to overcome? And I guess this is related to the implementation challenges, but even in this area and uh, as in many areas in criminal justice, it's tough to do an RCT to begin with. So as you and your colleagues start thought started thinking about this particular issue, is in, do you think the main challenge was or has been in the past getting the right data or is it all about having a good comparison group? It's both. Like data in the juvenile system is extremely hard to get because there's a lot of privacy rules. For example, in, in our setting, we were basically asked to do this in evaluation when the RCT was in progress and they wanted to see where they where they should stop and, and expand or not. I said, great, okay, let's give us the data. And it actually took them almost two years to overpass the, the legal hurdles of sharing data with external researchers. Although our data is unlike restricted servers and everything. So I think with juvenile records, there's a lot of challenges of getting access to data. And then with, with these kind of programs, this selection into participation is a big thing because if you have no RCT, then you're comparing people who enrolled. And that means that they were willing to meet with the victim to engage in this kind of dialogue. And we have a lot of concern that would be a non-random uh, sample that could be have different propensities of recidivism than the average comparable defendant. So I think selection and unobservability is, is a key challenge here. And also the data hurdles are meaningful. Yeah. And just to elaborate that on that a little bit. So if you would, you know, compared people who had opted into this program with people who look identical in every way, but didn't opt in and found that the people who went through the program reoffended less often, it would be hard to tell if that's because of the program or just some sort of unobservable difference in motivation or remorse or something like that, that led them to get into the program in the first place. Exactly. Right. All right. So let's dig into the implementation of Make It Right and how it was rolled out in San Francisco. And I gather this all, you know, the pilot happened without the involvement of researchers, right? This was all kind of going before you guys got involved. Is that right? Yeah. So they consulted some researchers, but they were prepared for them basically an Excel spreadsheet that does the randomization. and. The way it worked was that the handling prosecutor calls the paralegal that sits in a different place. And that paralegal has the Excel spreadsheet and they consult with it, see the randomization, which says treatment or control. And then it goes back to the prosecutor who does the, who sends the references. So they get some help, but it was basically, we, we get involved more in, in the evaluation stage, not in the implementation. And the program started at the end of 2013. And the objective was to enroll 25 youth into Make It Right each year. The reason it was so small was there was a lot of concerns, you know, that someone will potentially reoffend and commit a serious crime. And, and 
and this is a diversion program, so it's an alternative. So it's much as punitive in that sense. So it started small. The other was funding and capacity constraints. However, it also coincides. So that was the, the way the eligibility criteria was set up to have 25 people each year enroll into it. But over time, what happened is that exactly when this program was implementing, there was a huge drop in juvenile crime in San Francisco. So there were actually less people getting enrolled each year than they anticipated. So over time, they, they expanded a little bit the eligibility criteria, but the pilot lasted more time than they originally expected. So it lasted, started from the end of 2013, and the pilot ended in mid-2019. I just want to highlight also the fact that there was a big drop in juvenile crime is like exactly why you want a randomized control trial, right? <laughs> you need a contemporaneous comparison group because if you had just compared crime rates after the program started with crime rates before, they're automatically going to look better because crime had fallen overall. So that, yeah, it's great. Do you know why they were so interested in doing an evaluation like this to begin with? Like who was leading that charge? Yes. So I think a lot, a lot of credit is due to the district attorney at the time, George Scone, which was recently elected as the district attorney in Los Angeles. So he was basically, from what I understand, the person who rigorously advocated that it will be a randomized control trial that will tell us, does this work and whether we can expand it in the future and will give us like very credible uh, estimates. So I think a lot of credit is due to him, which what he did is, is something that not a lot of um, DAs will be willing to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay. And reminding, you mentioned this a little bit up front, but remind us in a little more detail, who's eligible for this program? Yes. So broadly speaking, everybody who's in the program was arrested for a felony offense. The offenses I want you to have in mind are mainly theft, burglary, or assault. So it's medium severity level offenses. Robbery is something that the program only got expanded to now, but it wasn't there in the pilot. So you should think of medium level felony offenses. And these are incidents in which the victim was not seriously injured. So they can get a punch by someone when they stole their, their phone. But it's not, someone, it's not an incident in which someone got stabbed or got shot. So it, we're excluding severe violence cases from the eligibility criteria. And it's felony. So it has to be serious enough, but not too serious. Exactly. And one of the reasons this was the pool was because they thought in San Francisco, they have good diversion programs for low-level crimes, so like infractions or misdemeanors. And what they needed is something for more serious offenses, but they, were not, they didn't feel comfortable trying to go straight to include uh, robberies or severe violent crimes into this program. So they chose exactly this medium level of mid-level severity. Okay. And the ages of people who are eligible? Yeah, so the average age here, age for eligibility is 13 to 18. And the average age in our sample is going to be 16. Okay, great. Okay, so you have this pilot of Make It Right that's rolling out and it's randomized. So people who are eligible get randomized in or out. And again, it's before they've agreed to take part. So we'll kind of get a sense of what take up is like. So how do you use this to measure the causal effect of the Make It Right program on defendants' outcomes? Exactly. So just to clarify one thing, the alternative here for so the control group is going to face a regular criminal prosecution for a felony offense. So these, they're not going to go into a diversion program or anything else. So it's, you're basically trying to see an alternative relative to the regular proceedings. And because there was 
this was an RCTA, so it's who was assigned to the make a trial program relative to the control group was done at random. Then the individuals in our treatment and control groups are going to be comparable both in terms of the observable characteristics and as well as any unobservable characteristics. So we can just compare the mean rate of rearrests within one year or within half a year, and that would give us the causal effect of the program on recidivism and rearrests. It's the beautiful thing about RCTs. They can be tough to set up, but then it makes the analysis super easy. <laughs> you just compare the two groups. Okay. And what data do you use for all this? So we got administrative records from San Francisco, which cover any interactions with the criminal justice system as juveniles and any interaction as adults. So we, we look at arrest and we also calculate the coin using this data, potentially criminal history for individuals in the juvenile system or in the adult system. That's one thing. The other is program participation data that got us both from the San Francisco District Attorney's Office as well as from the Community Works West that tell us whether someone actually enrolled in the program, whether they completed the program, whether sort of justice conference took place and different dates so we can know more about how the program was, uh, was implemented. And what does the sample look like? You told us the average age is 16. What else do you know about who's participating? So most of the, of the youth, so 90% are male, 50% are, are black. And among those who are not black, the majority are Hispanics. So most of these populations are, are minority male individuals. 20%, 27% of them, so like a quarter, have a prior a criminal arrest. So there's some prior interactions. This is basically the sample. If we think in, like trying to compare them to the overall pool of juveniles who are arrested for felony offenses in San Francisco. So the key difference is that there are not going to be any robbery cases here. There are only going to be assault, theft, and burglary. And something that we found interesting, but a bit surprising, was that in terms of the propensity to get rearrested, the individuals in the control group here are very similar to what you see in the overall sample. So the youth here, de facto, are very similar to the overall sample in terms of rearrest propensities. And one more question about implementation and eligibility. At what point does the victim have to agree? Is that before they're deemed eligible or is that after someone's randomized? So it's before someone is randomized, but after they're deemed eligible. And this is something we're a bit concerned about in terms of whether that will generate any selection in terms of when do the victims agree to participate or not. That, so the victim doesn't need to agree to participate. It needs to agree that the defendant will, have the, will be able to, to participate in the sort of justice program. Luckily, the prosecutor was in charge in juvenile cases at the time, was also the one that we talked to. So uh, she was there throughout uh, all the years. And she told us that throughout the pilot period, all the victims agreed that the youths will, be, will have the option for make it right. So there was no case in which the victim said, no, I'm not, I'm not willing that the youth will have this opportunity. So just by chance, we have that there's no differential selection here. That's really interesting. And also just speaks to the demand for a program like this, that every victim was willing to engage in this process rather than the usual criminal justice process. Great. We don't need to remember that this process is also empowering for the victim because in the regular proceeding, the role of the victims summarizes sometimes as an eyewitness and nothing else. Here, they sit in the conference, they have an active role, they're empowered to say, no, we're not okay with this. So, so they have a very meaningful role to play in the proceedings. And then on the other side, what share of 
the treatment group on the defendant side both enrolled and then ultimately completed the program? Yeah, so if you look at those who are assigned to the treatment, then to the Make It Right program, then 81% continue to enroll into it. Among them, 67% completed the program. However, there's also a bit of a slippage there in the sense that some people enrolled, but in the preparation meetings, they were deemed as unqualified or, or unsuitable for the program. So they never had a restorative justice conference. So among those who actually participated in the restorative justice conference, 95% continued to complete the program. And what's your sense of why people were deemed ineligible at that point? What were the sticking issues? So it could be for a variety of different reasons. So for example, someone can be in a situation where they say, listen, I know I was charged with this, with this crime, but I actually, I didn't do it. It's just, there's a complete mistake and I'm not the person. And in that case, they, they will say that's completely okay, but then you're not, this is not the right fit for you because this program is built for people who actually uh, have some responsibility and the incidents and the idea is to try to work out this responsibility. So that could be a scenario. Another scenario would be when someone just doesn't comply, say, I want to enroll, but then doesn't follow up, doesn't answer phone calls or something like that. There could be cases in which family members will need to also come and participate and they can't do it or, or either unable or unwilling. And there's other cases in which there's just not a good, not a realistic fit. There can also be cases in which it's the... If, for example, someone wants to enroll or someone enrolled, but the victim, for example, can say, I want complete compensation for the laptop that was stolen from me and I'm not willing to get anything less. Then that could be an unrealistic expectation. So someone will, in that case, will enroll, but will not complete the program because they're not going to, there will not be any point of doing the sort of justice conferencing when there's such a gap in expectations. Okay. Well, let's talk about what you find. What is the effect of the Make It Right program on future arrests? Yeah. So we found very large recidivism reducing effects. So to give you a sense, in the short run, so within six months, there's a reduction of 19 percentage points within one year of 18 percentage points. In the longer run, so after four years, we see a reduction of 27 percentage points, which is 30% relative to the rest rate among the control group. And one thing we also wanted to see is whether these effects are driven in any way by the time the youth is in the program in terms of like in quotation and capacitation effect. So the program lasts, uh, the median term is half a year. And after one year, nobody's in the program. So we also measured rest that took place between one to four years after randomization. And we find a reduction of 27 percentage points, which is 36% relative to the control group. So overall, we see that there's meaningful and large and persistent reductions in rare arrests. What I'm telling you now is any arrest, but you get similar estimates when you do different types of offenses. The effects will be smaller relative, and everything is relative to different baseline means, but you also see reductions in felony arrests or arrests for crimes that are as severe as the offense that the youth was originally arrested for. And those are all what we would call intent to treat effects, right? Exactly. So you're analyzing it as people were randomized before some of them might have dropped out for various reasons. Exactly. And that's a very good clarifying remark. That's yeah, very so that's, important. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you worry about selection, everything. It also means that these effects are, you know, averaging in some of these, some zeros essentially, like there are people who didn't participate. And so we would not expect an effect on them, which makes the results even more impressive. 
So this program, as you described before, is a package of a few components. So there's that restorative justice conference between the defendant and the victim, whatever restitution or programs the defendant agreed to, which I think you say in the paper could include stuff like family therapy or anger management. There are frequent meetings with a case manager after the conference ends that help them, you know, follow through on the agreed upon whatever the agreement was. And ultimately it also includes avoiding a criminal conviction, which could be helpful. So each of those components individually and together could contribute to the beneficial effects we're seeing from this program. So it's tough to know exactly what's driving the overall effects you find, but you do a bit of work to try to explore potential mechanisms. So what do you find when you dig in a little bit more? That's a great question. So let me give you just a bit of background. So just to highlight, what should we expect? So in California, unlike other jurisdictions in the US, anything that happens to you you as a juvenile, like arrest, charges, or convictions, uh, doesn't show up in employment background checks. So both of our treatment and control groups, so regardless of where they got convicted, any arrest, charging, or conviction decisions will not show up in their employment as adults. So that channel, which is, is usually a very important one when we talk about the tagging and the implications of having interactions with the criminal justice system, is less present here when we try to compare our treatment control group. Yeah. So if this program had been run with adults, then we might expect that avoiding a criminal conviction could be really important. But what you're saying is for the juveniles, it's probably not that big a deal because all their records wind up being sealed. Exactly. And also the arrest. So it's like And the arrest. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Both the arrest and the conviction. Just wanted to, to highlight that component. Mm-hmm. Let me t- tell you what we try to do a bit of and what we don't try. So in terms of unpacking the different types of supporting services they get following the conference, we don't try to do any unpacking there. Our logic there is that anything that comes as a result from the conference, even if it's not just a vic- the meeting with the victim, but it's, for example, help in anger management class or family therapy. If it's something that came up during the conversations with the victim and with the family members and everything that comes up in the conference, we think of it as part of that bundle. The other thing is the diversion from prosecution. So we have here, this is pre-charging. So you, you divert something from a lot of proceedings. So trying to unpack the di- all the, the effect of the different proceedings is very challenging, so we, we don't tackle that. What we do say is something that got a lot of attention, both in academic literature and in the media, is trying to understand the effect of a felony conviction. So we do something very simple, and we say, okay, can we say something about whether a felony conviction with everything that comes with it? And in California, of course, that will be less in terms of the employment because these are juveniles. But we just wanted to focus on that channel, whether that has an effect or not. So is that a potential confounder? And we think that that could potentially be something that is interesting to look at because in the control group, only 5% of the individuals will have a felony conviction. So those are individuals who either didn't enroll or didn't complete the program. In the control group, we're going to have 20% of the individuals are going to have a felony conviction. So there's a 15% gap in the likelihood of having a felony conviction. So that could be something that is a, it's a meaningful difference between the two groups. So one thing we do is we condition on a subsample of individuals that didn't get any felony conviction. That means we cut down the sample for the Make It Right program of the treatment group by 5% and for the control group by 20%. And if we think that those are individuals that based on the observers or unobservers have average or high 
rearrest propensities, so they, they're not lower in their rearrest propensities, then we're basically stacking the deck against finding that make it right to reduce recidivism because we're removing more people that are potentially of higher rearrest propensities from the control group. And then we do our analysis, then we compare rearrest rates. And in this selected sample, we see that there is uh, the effects of mechatrite as are still large and, and meaningful, almost the same as in the overall sample. So that's only suggestive, but it, it does highlight that we think that it uh, reinforces the idea that the bundle treatment you get in conferencing is what drives our effects. So what are the policy implications of these results? What should policymakers and practitioners who are listening take away from all this? I think they should take away that this is an important tool and we should think of how to incorporate restorative justice uh, conferencing in more criminal justice proceedings. As with any program, I think we should, this should happen with a rigorous validation and evaluation studies that go along with any implementation because any implementation in any place will have its own unique quirks. But it does tell us that law enforcement agencies specifically should be more courageous in terms of taking the chance and piloting this type of programs in their jurisdictions. Has the program in San Francisco expanded more since you all started? <laughs> well, I guess started working on this, but also um, put these results out. Yes. So they, they're in the post. So they already expanded it to, and they're slowly starting to get youth at committed robbery offenses. So they're expanding it in terms of, from, in terms of juveniles to include more severe offenses. And they're also in the process of also expanding this, I don't know exactly in which way, I think they're still working to the adult system. And how expensive is this? It sounds like it's, you mostly would have the counselor or the mediator essentially in the conference and then the caseworker afterwards, but you're avoiding having to have extra prosecutors <laughs> handling the case in the formal system. So do you have a sense of kind of what the costs versus cost savings are from this program? Yeah, so what we've been told is that this is much cheaper than the regular proceedings. And the intuition is exactly like you were saying. You save judges' time, prosecutor time, defense attorney time. You save individuals who are in criminal proceedings who are juveniles are going to be under the supervision of the juvenile probation system. So they're going to also, there's a probation officer that's also going to be, so you're saving all of those costs. And the facility and the coordinator time are usually much less expensive than the judge and prosecutor time. We currently don't have numbers we can quantify because we have average costs on one component and we have marginal costs on the other ones. And we're still poking different people to try to get comparable cost estimates to give uh, actual dollar values. So this is still a work in progress, which we want to do. But this is the anecdotal evidence or the anecdotal things we hear from conversations. Yeah, that's even better. So you have big reductions in recidivism and it costs less money to get there. So that's uh, <laughs> that's something we always love to see. It's, it just goes to show how much work there is to do in the criminal justice system. So that is all your paper, this new paper you have out. Have any other papers related to this topic come out since you all first started working on this study? Not that I'm aware of. If you are aware of you, please let's send them my way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I agree. There really isn't much on restorative justice that is really, you know, measuring the causal effects. So it's a good place for grad students to be working and send the papers to me too, if, uh, if anybody knows about them. <laughs> and I guess with that in mind, what's the research frontier? One of the next big questions in this area that you think both yourself and others will be thinking about going forward? I think the big thing is understanding where the effects can be scaled up to large. 
because you know I think the, the effects are uh, at least to me I think they look credible and convincing. But the question is, can this be an alternative that to the way we do criminal justice, which can handle large inflow of cases? So we need where well, they get hundreds of cases uh, or thousands per year. So I think we need some kind of a very large RCT uh, with very broad types of eligibility criteria to try to evaluate that. I think a bit in the sense that, you know, this is me drawing analogies to very famous experiments. So I, I will try to do it in a humble way. But if we think of the Perry Preschool experiment, which included, was extremely small, it included uh, 123 observations, but it had very large impacts. And it took, I think, many years until we had the rigorous evaluations of, of large-scale preschool programs, like, uh, like I think there's a recent paper by Chris Walters and Joshua Angerstein. So I think what we need now is, is like something very big that will tell us, can this be scaled up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think related to that, who benefits the most from a program like this and an opportunity like this? And then going back to our previous question about mechanisms, I think also trying to tease apart do you really need this whole package or could you just have the restorative justice conversation in the conference? I mean, you could imagine that just having the defendant and the victim talking it out could be most of what's driving this, or do you need the follow-up, you know, what should go into the agreement and what should be on the table to be in the agreement? And then do you need the case manager and like all of that stuff? Like you could imagine making it even a shorter process and maybe even cheaper and uh, easier for various people involved and still get most of the benefit from it. Which is a very, very good point. One thing that I think your point reminds me is when we think of them, and this is completely qualitative, like, so I don't have any hard evidence on this, but when we think of one of the differences between this and the other two experiments in the US that happened in the early 90s and other experiments outside, is the fact that we have this person who's the agreement monitor. And you could think of it as the person who nudges the youth all the time, make sure you follow up, make sure you follow up. So I think it would be very interesting to have an evaluation of how impactful that person is. But just from a comparison viewpoint, that's one of the unique things in this setting uh, relative to other places where things worked less well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess as in most programs where you know we've got one really nice study that shows that it works in this case in San Francisco, it will of course be helpful to not just have one much bigger study the way you described, but having this tried in lots of different places, because you could imagine the implementation being slightly different and probably needs to adapt a little bit to the context in different cities. And there's always more to figure out. So hopefully some listeners will be inspired to go uh, try this out in their city or county. Absolutely right. I completely agree and support. My guest today has been Yotam Shemta from UCLA. Yotam, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoyed the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Haley Greasaber. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you in two weeks.